Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hey guys, before we get into the episode, I just want to say thank you to everyone on Patreon. I know things are crazy in this world right now and people are losing their, their jobs and stuff and just really value everyone who's been able to stick with us on Patreon. I know there's a few of you who had to drop out and listen, I get it. I get it. There's no sense throwing money at a podcast when, you know, you need the money for your family. So I, again, I'm totally understanding if if you got to drop out, but if you don't, you know, and you're still with us there on Patreon, which a good good 30 of you are or so, uh, I just want to say I appreciate it. And we will continue to bring you the Mark Striegel episode, Mark Striegel podcast episode every Friday on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash talking metal. I do that page with Victor Ruiz, who has his own podcast. And Victor's podcast is called Mars Attacks. And by the way, there's a new episode of Talking Rock out with me and Joey Haney, which you can hear on talkingrock.net. Uh, that's my website, TalkingRock.net. It's all about Rush today, guys. Let's do this. Hi, I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. On this episode, we're going to talk some rock, some metal, and anything else we feel like. We're also going to jam some tunes, have a drink, and share some honest opinions. Thanks for listening to the Talking Metal Podcast. Let's get things started. Here's an old classic that sounds just as good today as it did when we were kids.
Anthem by Rush. Uh, when Rush put out that second record, Fly By Night, I think within 15 seconds of that first song there off the, the second Rush album, we knew that things were different. Neil Peart was in the band, and it was definitely going somewhere a little different than it did on that first record. And you can hear that immediately when that intense opening. It's like a ice pick in the forehead opening. So freaking good. We're going to talk with Martin Popoff, metal historian, if you will, about Rush, about his new books about Rush, one of which I have read. It's called Anthem. It's a great read. What better time than now to read a book, right, guys? So, so let's, let's do this. An interview with Martin Popoff here on Talking Metal. Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and a guy we've had on the podcast numerous times over our almost 15-year career as a, as a podcast here, and a guy I always look forward to talking to, Martin Popoff. Martin, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing okay, Mark. Thanks for having me again. It's very cool. You bet, man. And man, what a time to give you a little press and, and promotion here, because we're all kind of held up in our houses here, and man... Your books are a great thing to get us through through these times, uh, this COVID nineteen quarantine times, because you had so many good ones through the years that I've I've read and just completely psyched. Because a few months back, actually before Neil Neil passed, I got this great book in the mail, Anthem Rush in the nineteen seventies, and this is just an awesome read it's my favorite era of rush is the 1970s and just love all the stories that are coming from this book and it turns out correct me if i'm wrong martin but this is just the first of three books right yes so we've got that one i think that title is uh is a little it, it got changed a bit it's just anthem rush in the 70s hopefully i mean that is what it's going to be but, okay uh, so it's we've got that one then we've got limelight rush in the 80s and then we've got driven rush in the 90s and in in quotation marks in the end as per the song right so it goes right up to the end so yeah it's a trilogy of books uh this one comes out I think next week and uh, the next one is October and then the next one is spring of uh, 2021. It could be a completely different world uh, even by right. October. Who knows, right? Um, but yeah, that that's the plan. They've all been written, finished for well over a year, maybe even two years uh, in, in some cases, uh, like with the first one. But yeah, it, it just feels like it's been a long time. But they go through a long editing process and stuff. This is a, this is a big, good, um, you know, traditional publisher here in Toronto. They're the uh, company that did my first Rush book uh, way back in 03, Contents Under Pressure. That was the authorized one. They've done all of Neil Peart's books. Um, you know, I mean, his latest, you know, the last ones that he ever did, not right. his, not his earlier self-published ones. But yeah, big music book publisher and all sorts of uh, books publisher. And they're oddly, their uh, office is literally like a 15-minute walk from my office, which is really cool. It makes it really convenient. <laughs> right on, right on. And now you worked on one of my favorite music documentaries. You've actually worked on a, a, a few of them, which we'll talk about maybe later in the in the interview. But I'm talking about Beyond the Lighted Stage, the uh, documentary that Banger Films did. You were involved with that. And from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but these books kind of spun out of that documentary in a way. Yes, definitely. So, so I worked on that. I was full time there. I was like a research guy and a little bit on the story thing, but you know, finding all sorts of cool stuff to put in and whatnot, and transcribing interviews, doing a lot of that. So I had a lot of that in my computer. And then just one day, um, just out of the blue, I was just thinking, eh, what's my next project going to be? And I, I thought I'd approach those guys. It was years later, and I said, hey, you know, if we if we paid you a few bucks, could we could we use the you know all this great interview footage that doesn't go in the movie? Because what happens. In a movie is essentially they have this kind of rule of thumb where where like you will film an hour's worth of stuff and use a minute of it. And so we had tons and tons and tons of stuff that we never used. And I thought this stuff's got to get seen. And I feel that way with a lot of lot of docs that I've, I've been part of over there. Right. Right. There's right. just all this great footage locked up there. So they were fine with that. And we, and we checked with the office and the rush office was fine with that. Everything's cool. And so we got their blessing. Um, so. So, yeah, that, that was the only way I felt like I could ever do another rush book. I never had any plans to because I did that first one, which was the authorized one. But it was a little thin. It was only like. 
a 60,000 word book. Then I did Rush the Illustrated History for Voyager. And in that one, I vowed not to overlap with the first one. So I used sort of outside uh, um, outside press and interviews that I had after the first book. And then we did Rush album by album. I did that series of those five books. And that's just getting a bunch of experts together and talking about each studio album. So that didn't overlap. And so for this one, I thought, OK, this is going to be the big enchilada. You know, I'm going to use everything I've got because it's with the same publisher as the original one. So I'd use all that again. Um, plus all this great extra footage, plus other interviews I've had with the band, plus outside press. And then the last thing I wanted to do is I was inspired a little bit by these, um, the, this clash in this Led Zeppelin book I did, all the albums, all the songs, where it's just like straight monastic 400 to 500 right. words, straight analysis by me on every single song. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in more of my opinion and more of my analysis into it as well. So we just threw all this stuff at it, and the original plan was we were gonna do just one book, and then we just had enough for three books. Right, right. Well, let's let's talk about the book that that I read, Anthem. You said Anthem in what? What is Rush the Rush in the seventies on that Rush cover, in the seventies? Rush in the nineteen seventies. We had. Oh, uh, okay. So just Rush in the seventies. I, I got it. Yeah, because I have an advanced copy, I guess. But uh, yeah, the the one the one thing at the beginning of the book that that really struck me, and you know, I I guess I'd heard this. Maybe it was mentioned in the movie, but I I never really thought about it and and felt it as as heavy as I did from from the book was 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 Getty Lee's father uh, a holocaust survivor that that really dies young I mean when when Getty's quite young he he dies possibly because of injuries he's that he took on yep. during the holocaust yeah yeah, and and uh, and mom was a Holocaust survivor too, right? So, yeah. uh, and that's how they met, right? I think they met in the second camp or something. It yeah. was it's quite a quite a story. Um, and then, yeah, Getty was twelve, and yeah, I guess his his father kind of never got over the injuries that he had from being in a camp. So Getty was the man of the house pretty quick, right? Yeah, um, you know, his, which his really brother, forms who he is. At least that's what I take from the book. Yeah. And he was really responsible right away. Um, you know, and he was always conflicted about quitting school and being a rock star. Right. And, and not going to college and stuff like that. I think that's I think that's another reason he became such a renaissance man and a learned man. You know, he's so into books. Well, he's into reading, but he's into even collecting books. Right. Yeah. But he's into so many different things. He's a wine expert and all that, as we know. Right. And, he's, you know, healthy guy, does a lot of sports. So does Alex. Um, so I, I, I think a lot of that may Made him pretty responsible right away. And, you know, and then there's this narrative always, you know, that I don't know if I fully ascribe to, but this thing about Canadians being just sensible, solid, salt of the earth people and all this, right? You, you know, he's growing up in the suburbs and Alex, I mean, th there's basically not a lot of scandal with Rush. So I think that that feeds into it as well. We know they're, they're, you know, they're, they're polite you know, kind of conservative dudes. Right. So, um, so yeah, they, they, um, they basically came up and, and were pretty, pretty organized and solid about what they did as was Neil. Right. I mean, Neil, Neil obviously is the same way. He's the professor, right? <laughs> right. 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 And, you know, you mentioned Neil, but there, there was another drummer before Neil that we don't really think about that much. At least I don't, when I think of Rush, I think of, you know, yeah. Getty, Alex, Neil, but, but, but John, Rutsy, I mean, he was he truly was the leader of the band. At least that's what I'm taking from the book. Yeah, I wouldn't say so much leader of the band, but he was probably number one. He was the he was the biggest partier. He was kind of a rock star dude. He drank and stuff. Yet yet he had diabetes. So he had always, you know, these health problems and stuff. Um, but um, I wouldn't say per se leader of the band, but he was kind of like the he was he was almost like. I don't know if he was even the feared guy in the band, but he's a little bit like uh, it's a, it's a little bit like the Ace Frehley of the band and even the Paul Diano in the band. So okay. Paul Diano was a little bit the ruffian and, and maybe a little bit kind of like feared. Oh, what's he going to do next? And I almost get that feeling with John Rutsey, but we do get that impression when we see that really awesome lost footage of that uh, playing in that high school that he was. He was the spokesman on stage in the band, which is quite bizarre, right? He's the guy. He's the guy announcing the songs and and giving the little "Hey, how you doing, everybody out yeah. there?" 
right? Which is pretty wild. You see that in the footage that uh, that you get in the in the film. That that story of finding that is pretty interesting. They, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? This uh, I, yeah, they, I haven't seen the film in a number of years, but I do have a, a recollection of what you're yeah, talking about. And yeah, they, and then they put more of it on the DVD extras. But essentially, what was found we found was a long lost uh, full concert professionally shot in a high school. Uh, the only moving footage of John, video footage of John. So it was the original band um, playing like six or seven songs, half of them that are not on any album. Um, and this is, I think, Fly By Night is on there way before Fly By Night comes out. I think one of the songs anyways. But um, so so that was a funny story. I mean, um, I wasn't there at the time on this particular trip to the office, but we went to the Anthem offices and um, – and uh, they were just rummaging through a bunch of stuff and they found, I think it was a VHS or one of those older formats with a little yellow sticky on it that says, what the F is this? And that's it. Right. <laughs> uh, it's not marked in any way. And they took it away and played it. And it was like, it was like the, you know, it was this thing that we knew existed that I had been looking for all this time. I, I had, you know, through my research found that, you know, this footage uh, it was really bizarre. Like there was this big TV station in in this small town in Ontario, Kitchener, and the TV station bought the old brick house next door and and just took all the footage that they ever filmed of anything and just hucked it into this room in this old house. And then the house burned down or everything was thrown out from it or whatever. Wow. So, so there was all this like, oh, my God, we we hear this exists because we saw black and white pictures of of this this high school concert with big, massive, uh, you know, proper video cameras and thought, oh man, if we could only find that. And then, so lo and behold, it was sitting in the rush office, you know, all, all the time with a little yellow sticky on it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's interesting how early on in the picture too, Terry Brown comes, comes into the, uh, the equation as, as the rush producer yeah. who would be with them just like for how long? I mean, just for decades, literally. Right. Well, right, right through, uh, not decades, but um, right from he helps patch up the first album and then he's he's there for every single in the 70s all the way through to Signals. OK. All right. Uh, so so 1980. Yeah. Like he's there for Permanent Waves, 80, uh, 80. OK. So he didn't do Grace Under Pressure then. Uh, right. He's okay. he's that's the first one he doesn't do. So he's right. all the way there right up until Signals. And there's this speaking of the first record, there's this this story that uh that's in the book. And I just wanted to clarify this. So, so John wrote like, like Neil would in, in the years to come wrote lyrics and they go in to record. And I guess it was right before they start recording the, the first album, John suddenly loses the lyric sheets or decides he doesn't want his lyrics used. And they basically write the lyrics just on the fly for the, for the first record. Getty ends up writing them. Yeah, it's like I think John tore them up or something. Or yeah, that's what it says in the book. Yeah, he was he was pretty. Um, he was a temperamental guy, so they were always a little. And he would ostracize people. That's the that's the word that Alex Alex used in there, right? So he would he would be into these sort of petty friendship games, I guess, you know, you'd be ostracized or whatever. So yeah, that really ticked the guys off. So they always knew he was a little bit of an unpredictable guy. It's a little bit like the Steven Tyler stories that you, you remind me of, like, like, don't we hear stories of him having all the lyrics ready to go for the album, then he loses the notebook right, or whatever, right. leaves yeah. it on top of a car in a restaurant or something. <laughs> and it said, so, that it said in the book, you know, John, I think it was Alex or maybe it was Getty, John regretted that they didn't use his lyrics, you know, for, for years to come, I'm sure, because that was been a financial, uh, gain for him. But so Terry Brown in, in the, in the picture early helping, I guess, remix certain songs, re-record some parts, and then they record, I guess, three new songs with him. That first record comes out and it, really catches on in the city of Cleveland. I guess Working Man is getting played on WMMS. And I I found that to be interesting. It seemed like Cleveland was a really important town for Rush in in breaking them, at least in the States. Yeah, it was, as was uh, Pittsburgh and St. Louis. I mean, Casey and St. Louis was a big deal as well. Um, You know, so they were, they were, um, you know, it's it's a little bit funny. I I have my own podcast, and I, I'm I'm remembering back now. The very first episode I did was Led Zeppelin in hair metal, right? And right. you know, talked about things like Kingdom Come, and so it's it's funny that 
they probably got a little bit of a leg up simply for a couple of novelty factors. Number one, there is the obvious story that, you know, everybody thought this was the new Led Zeppelin or at least sounded very much like Led Zeppelin. So there was that comparison. But then Getty's voice also is kind of a novelty voice. I never thought he sounded like Robert Plant, but it definitely is a novelty voice. So it's it's one of these things that people will talk about for good or worse. But they say, you know, no publicity is bad publicity. Right. Uh, or or bad, even bad publicity is okay publicity, right. whatever, right. right? So so there was a lot to talk about when you get an album like that. I mean, it was also quite well recorded, quite accomplished, uncommonly heavy for the day. I mean, there really wasn't much. American heavy metal, I also did two episodes on my podcast about the origins of UK metal versus American metal, and American metal was still pretty backwards and, and boogie-based, right? We came up with, you know, they had, they had the big, MC5 and Stooges thing going, but then it was like Cactus and Mountain, and it was still like post-British blues boom stuff, right? But by 74, I mean, Aerosmith is just getting going, Bluister Cult is just getting going, Kiss's first album is 74. There's that great, great Montrose album, of course. That's a that's probably the best first heavy metal album out of America. But, you know, this Rush album is is pretty darn heavy and well put together and and cool and exciting. So it's it's no wonder that I think it caught on. There just really wasn't anything like it at the time. Right on, right on. And and what was there was there a gap uh, you know for these bands like like Rush and Aerosmith to kind of come in i mean deep purple was basically falling apart at that point i mean Ian Gillen was gone they they were going a different direction there were some zeppelin even you know i mean we all now look back at physical graffiti as as a masterpiece which it was but it, there was something that that wasn't quite as commercial about that record as there had been the earlier Zeppelin records. Was there an opening for newer bands to come in at that time? Yeah, there, there is kind of that theory. I mean, it's more of a, a you know, 75 to 79 thing. Right. With, um, Cause I just did an episode on this, on my, my history and five songs podcast thing where, where it was, I did the late seventies UK and the late seventies us, just like I did the early seventies. There's, there's four kind of episodes that, that tell this story, but, but yeah, so you had Led Zeppelin, um, going away in 79, but being patchy already and, and being considered a little bit stodgy, even, you know, post you know, physical graffiti is awesome, but presence got some bad reviews and in through the outdoor was not heavy enough and all this. Right. But right. Deep Purple's completely gone and they're all off doing their fusion bands. Pace Ashton Lord, John Lord solo, Roger Glover solo, uh, the Ian Gillen band. Right. Right. He was right. a heavy band. Yeah. Uh, so Rainbow starting up yeah. and Black Sabbath falling apart. You know, te- technical ecstasy didn't get good reviews. Um, Your Eye Heap is kind of going away. They lose David Byron at that point. Right. So all the big early bands are kind of going away and yeah into the wake steps kiss aerosmith ted nugent Bloy chacault heart journey boston rush um you know a couple smaller bands uh moxie from from canada triumph from canada uh what else derringer yeah uh, was one stars angel um so yeah there was this uh i, I you know it, it is considered a bit of a golden era of of american hard rock uh, but that really doesn't really, you know, they don't get the payoff really until about 76, which coincidentally is when Rush breaks big with 2112. Right. They, yeah. they have the first gold album. And I do, eyes, right? Yeah, I do want to talk about 2112, which is a really important record for me, one of my favorite albums. But real quick, Kiss, you mentioned Kiss. And, it, you know, a lot of times when we hear about bands touring together, it, there's friction, you know, between the two bands. But, but Kiss and Rush seem to get along so great. I mean, musically, different bands, different musically for sure. But in some ways, I mean, I loved both bands as as a kid. So, I mean, I think there was a big crossover audience. But but these guys really liked each other. Yeah, a couple things there. I've never thought about this, and that's a really cool question you ask. I mean, um, you know, first of all, Rush are likable guys. They're not going to do anything to tick off the kiss guys. Right. I mean, they're just likable dudes. Right. Um, and also they're, they're really studious in what they're doing. So even though, so here's the other thing. So, so rush is no, is kind of like no threat to kiss 
in a way because Kiss can just blow everybody away with their stage show and stuff and these so- songs that are really well written and direct and and simple to understand. So they recognize that Rush is doing a totally different thing and uh, and they're probably even going to get a little ridiculed and given a hard time before uh, Kiss goes on. So they're probably even getting a little sympathy from the guys. But uh, on the same token, you know, the Kiss guys were pretty, um, you know, pretty, pretty serious about what they were doing from a from a musical uh you know, idea. They were music. They were big music fans, put it that way. So they could probably respect Rush as well, how good they were as musicians. And yeah, they just got along. They were doing different things. And this was the era of, uh, you know, a lot of three band bills, a lot of, you know, the sandwich band in the middle, all these bands that we just talked about all toured together. And it was also the era when it wasn't so organized that you had uh, strictly a certain backup band for a long, long time, like a single tour start to finish. There was a lot of just jumping on wherever you happen to be. And right. then also there was a lot of filling in the gaps between the big shows at the hockey barn. You would just go play the local theater or the local club on the way if you had a day off or whatever. Right. So, that, right. so all these bands worked super hard and, you know, sometimes they were good for two albums a year. Um, and, um, and yeah, it was just this, this, you know, Getty, Getty says it the best, you know, when he, when he says it, I, I remember, you know, I think this might've been an in-person interview with him at one point or whatever, but you know, he said just that life takes, takes a chunk out of your soul. Right. right. You hear about like the thousand yard stare or whatever. Um, it's just, it just really beats something out of you doing that. So I think all those guys that go through that crucible, um, you know, have a lot of respect for each other for fighting that war. Right. Right on. Like when Rush opened for Shana Na, which you mentioned in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or show up and, you know, the club owners thinks he's getting the folk guy, Tom Rush. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And we're talking with Martin Popoff about his book, Anthem Rush in the 70s. Uh, great, great stuff. A must have a must read for all Rush fans. And Martin, the book is available when again? Uh, pretty much, uh, I would say mid-April, okay. by the end of April. It's literally, uh, you know, even with this virus going on, I mean, there are, like I say, uh, you know, we were talking before, my my personal uh, supply chain is has not been broken. My mailing house has stayed open. Miraculously, these books that I'm receiving from various places, the print shops have stayed open or or sometimes they've been printed overseas. But this is this is a big, thick hardcover. It's, it's a read. It's not a photo book like a lot of my other big rush books have been so it's got photo sections um but it's but it's like a like a big substantial read sort of thing but i i am getting copies soon and i'll have them at my website martinpopoff.com is i usually you know i always have a supply of everything i do i i ship them sign them here ship them out there's there'll be paypal buttons and all that stuff for them but yeah so uh you know apparently even though there's no bookstores you know publishers have that problem right uh, but places like me that do a lot of mail order as part of their monthly deal. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, touch, touch wood, at least for now. Um, we're not closed down. Awesome. That's great news. And let's, uh, let's talk about again, that album, that just amazing record 2112. It was really from what I'm reading in the book, like it was a make or break record for them. Yeah. So they had the, you know, the down the tube tours and the down or down the tubes tour on Caress of Steel and the album Caress of Steel, which was a step back. They had all the added excitement with the debut. Fly by Night had a hit on it with Fly by Night. It was doing well. The band was on the up and up. And then things took a dive with Caress of Steel. It was considered to be just a little obscure and weird and a little bit like Getty says, we smoked a lot of pot making that record. Right. Uh, yeah. But then they decided, uh, well, OK, if we're going to crash in flames, we're going to go down our way. This is this is where they really kind of gained their independence. They made essentially, you know, I don't think 2112 is that much different of al- an album from Cress of Steel. It's structured pretty much the same way. Um, but, you know, I guess the songs are a little better. The production's better. Cress of Steel was a little thin. I didn't have a lot of there's bottom. like an anger. I feel like the, the, like there's there's more of an oomph and, and almost an anger to 2112, at least. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's a little more majestic, and yeah, a little more confidence. I everything's just a little better. Caress of Steel almost sounds like the demo version of Twenty One Twelve, I guess, in in a little ways. But really, uh, Twenty One Twelve, to my mind, is not that much more of a commercial record. It's it's just quite 
non-commercial as was caress of steel so so essentially they make this album and surprise it does well i mean prog is big at this time uh this is a progressive metal band this is the band that invented progressive metal right i mean literally they took prog and they took metal and just jammed them together i mean it's it's a pretty clear formula and they're the only ones doing it nobody dares copy them right i mean i always think the closest things that you would consider close to this are sticks, uh, Kansas, uh, a little bit of your eye heap, maybe a little bit of King Crimson, but all of those are way different than Rush anyways. Yeah. Right. But you know, they got that, they got the, the matching toga look on the back and this big sci-fi story and it's a gatefold and it's got the pentagram. So it's got a lot going for it. Hard rock's a big deal at the time. Prague is a big deal at the time. Concept records are accepted. Radio stations would play a whole side or whatever, or a whole album. They didn't. They didn't seem to mind. So yeah, it just it just by sheer force of their will and by sheer force of doing something really unique, it went over. And uh, you know, it didn't go over huge. It would. It became a gold album, right? But that was enough to uh, you know to keep their career going on the up and up. Absolutely. And I did want to ask you a few non-Rush questions, but before before we do that, um, Neil, his his interviews that you did with him, any memories you can share, any personal th- thoughts you want to share about Neil? Yeah, I mean, Neil, the great thing about Neil is that uh, it's, it's really funny. Like like one thing I just love about the way he 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 ran his life when it came to interviewing. So, okay, so there's always this big myth that Neil Neil doesn't do interviews, right? But right. It, if you go back, he did a ton of interviews all through the whole rush time. It's only later on after the tragedies that he that he kind of withdrew in a big way, right? But he was good in those early interviews. He would engage, he would not be patronizing, he would talk politics or whatever, and that seemed to bite him on the butt a couple times, like when he got, you know, a, a, when they started going in all this libertarian and Rand stuff, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but no, he was, he was good. And then, and then yes, sure. He withdrew, but then he decided the funny thing is he decided that, okay, yeah, I'm not going to do interviews, but I'm going to write these massive books that are going to be the ultimate Neil interviews. And no one's going to have to ask me anything ever again, because I'm just going to tell them everything in these books. And that's what he did with his life. Right. But the the corollary to that is that when you did get an interview with him and, and talk to him, he he would be great. He'd be a killer interview. He'd talk your ear off just like he talked the bangers guys ears off. He was right. He he talked about everything. And that's that's why this trilogy of books is gonna have so much good rich stuff uh when you get into the eighties and nineties as well, because there's lots and lots of Neil, right? That that we haven't seen. But uh but yeah, he he was the same with me. It was just he was really engaging and uh and you know would answer all my questions and stuff. You know, I, I knew that there's always with him, you know, you got to know that that there's that thorny thing is that he doesn't want to be praised. And, okay. um, you know, and also he he had this thing that um, he would quickly and easily get embarrassed by his old material and think the newer material is great. And oh, my God, I hate the old stuff. I don't, you know, which is crazy because everybody loves the 70s rush and the and the later stuff, not so much. Right. Um but Neil would be probably the opposite. I mean, he he would he would praise to the hills the new stuff, but he'd be the one guy out of the three that would probably disown the early material the most. That's interesting because I, I do remember as a kid, like the first time I saw Rush was on the Grace Under Pressure tour. And the, I remember reading interviews with, with them at that time, and there was this real thing with them where they, they didn't want to be – associated with any of the hard rock bands you know they were they wanted to be more associated with the police and they kept talking about the police and they don't they don't listen to hard rock they don't like hard rock so so that's it's kind of interesting that of course would have been in in the 80s mid 80s uh were they really do you remember them trying to really distance themselves from their roots at that time Oh, for sure. You know, I always, I always like fantasize, dream that, oh, what if they went like your eye heap and did yeah, Abominog or Budgie and did Power Supply or Black Sabbath? Like, what if they embraced the new wave of heavy, heavy metal instead of running away from it? Right? right. Because they were loved at that time. Right. And they were loved by the British. Uh, you know, th- those albums. I mean, you think of Permanent Waves and, and Moving Pictures. I mean, they they would have could have been probably even more massive had they had they gone heavier even. Right. Right. Um, 
and and just 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 been this big you know just duking it out with uh with judas priest and uh and uh who else scorpions and aussie at the time right. but you know they they kind of ended up doing that anyways they kind of ended up being accepted despite going in this direction and being you know frankly quite trendy and doing a lot of things that don't stand the test of time because because they were such curious guys that they that they were um you know uh technology adopters early adopters right mm-hmm. so they would they would early adopt things when they weren't quite developed yet so you'd have all these electronic drums all over things and thin and you know wall bases and all these stuff that now is considered you know ah, it, it didn't stand the test of time so well but the the other crazy thing is um you know even though their album sales kind of started to go down and plateaued. I mean, they, they were still gold through all that eighties period, but they, they had this, this, um, sort of interesting business philosophy where they never went backwards in terms of a live band and they kept making the live show. This is where their love of technology paid off for them because they kept throwing money into the live show and being a high tech live show and doing a lot of video stuff and, uh, and a lot of props and a lot of cool stuff. So they were, um, always playing the same huge venues as all those other big metal bands were playing all through the 80s, even though there was a pronounced difference in how well embraced their albums were. Right, right on. I wanted to also mention that I recently watched the documentary, That Little Band from Texas about ZZ Top and saw your name on that one too, man, what a, what a great story that tells so, so much good stuff on such a great band, a band that I know you really, really love. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that was so fun working on that. I'm, I'm in there as a story consultant and then I'm in the, in the credits also as a transcriber. So again, it's a situation where I've actually, you know, in my own home office that I'm sitting in now, I would get sent you know, interviews to transcribe and thinking, oh, this great stuff. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll check with those guys again at some point and say, let's, let me do a ZZ Top book or something. Right. But, uh, no, that was really cool coming up with that. Um, you know, working early on, on, on kind of the story end of it, you know, Ralph Chapman's great writer. He's, he's the chief writer on the thing. And Sam, Sam Dunn, of course, was super involved, but yeah, the funny thing was, uh, I recall fond memories of, of trying to figure out what the story should be, where we should take it to. Ralph had this idea that he wanted to sort of end it around the Viva Las Vegas period and tie right. it back to Dusty and his love of singing and love of Elvis and stuff. And then I, you know, I had one thing where I thought, why don't we make this about how this is the quintessential American band? They're like they're like more American than than Aerosmith even. Um, they're 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 not as you know uh, metaphorically American as Leonard Skinner, but the thing is they're not polarizing like Leonard Skinner right, either. Right. Like everybody loves them. It's not an argument between the left and right with ZZ Top. They're just the most American band ever. So I thought that would be something to push as a storyline. And then I also. My my pet storyline more than anything would have been, you know, but but of course we we couldn't do this. It's not really practical. But I personally am one of the few people that thinks this band's some of their greatest albums are the ones they made recently. Like I think Rhythmine is so heavy and I have this argument with people all the time. It's just this lost massive gem. It's practically my favorite ZZ Top album. I love Mescalero. From like 96 or 97. Yeah. yeah. 97. Yeah. 97. Um, and it might be 96, uh, but Antenna I loved as well. So I loved all those records, XXX, not so much. And the last one, not so much, but I loved everything else they did from Antenna on. Um, so that was a, sto- a storyline where I thought this is one of the key bands that's making some of their best music now, even though nobody cares because it's just a heritage act and they're just love for the old hits. Right. But obviously, as you've seen from the movie, we had to sort of come up with this thing where, okay, you can only say so much, you know, and there's been some complaints about it, right? That ending it essentially with Eliminator, the story yeah. of how Eliminator was, but you know, you only have so much time. And and we learned that in the Rush movie, it was just really- 90 minutes, yeah. Yeah. We're watching the Rush movie and, and, and I remember that thing 
living as a four hour movie for months and months. Then it was a three hour movie for months and months. And then like right at the end, boom, down to 88 minutes. Right. So, so, you know, banger is so high quality in what they do and they're just agonizing over every second of what can we put in here? And we'd sit in meetings and we'd make notes and we'd say, I guess you could chop that a little bit there maybe or whatever. And then, you know, we'd have to move, the editors would have to move things around, which is just a wild process. But yeah, I mean, they would just polish these things like a diamond to get it to be the perfect story. Right. And every fan, everybody at banger is huge music fans. We would all love every movie to be four and a half hours long, but you just can't do it. Right on. But you, you mentioned rhythm. Mean I love that song. My mind is gone. Such a one of my oh, favorite season yeah. top songs. Absolutely. So heavy. stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, ACDC. Uh, I had the, the honor of being included in a book that you put together a number of years ago, ACDC album by album. Absolutely. And uh, there was so much fun doing, in that book with you talking to you about one of my favorite bands what, what do you think the future for acdc is we're hearing maybe there's going to be this album that has leftover stuff that will include stuff you know malcolm had been working on before he passed away uh do you think we're going to get another album by acdc another tour Man, I don't know if if it was up to me, if I was their manager or whatever, I would say, you know, for the sake of humankind, uh, prop Brian up in a chair and get him to sing another album. Forget about touring. Who cares? It would just be great to have one more great ACDC album. None of this Tom Brady going to the Buccaneers stuff. We don't we don't need right. one last ACL, ACDC album with axel singing or something right it's ridiculous right i mean it has to be brian or no one don't even do it right um so so i would just love to see one more album with brian i mean if there was something with leftovers in that i would hate them to even even like make it like an album uh like try to call it a a last album i just don't want to mess right yeah um and and i thought i just i'm so bummed out because acdc and zz top are probably my two favorite bands ever you know i've got got a few others that I bring up obviously from time to time, but, but really when push comes to shove and I I think of who has a ton of albums that I love, ACDC is one of the top two. And it just pains me so much that I hate rock and bust. Right. Uh, rock or bust. Right. And I love black ice, you know, so I wish they would have ended it on black ice. Uh, but, but now I wish they would end it on a good album. Cause I just, I just something about almost every single song or rock or bust. I don't like, hmm. and almost okay. every song on black ice. I love, I thought that was a masterpiece. Um, and I thought rock or bust was a disaster and I hate that. Right. I, I don't want to see them end on a bad album. So I don't know, man, I, I don't, I don't see why you can't get, uh, get Brian to dust off those pipes and, and all you got to do is, is put together 45 minutes. Well, I don't know. That's that's too short these days. But right. so so 52 minutes of, of music. I, you know, like I say, for for the sake of the happiness of millions and millions of people, like give us one more good album. Right on. Right on. And Deep Purple. I didn't think we were going to get another album from them, but we apparently are. Whoosh is coming out and there was a single Release. Just wondering if you heard the the new Deep Purple track, "Throw My Bones." Hey, man, I'm I'm, I'm way beyond you on that one. I've, yeah. I've heard the whole thing for oh, okay. weeks. I've interviewed Ian Pace about it. I've interviewed Ian Gillen about it. So I know everything there is to know about that album. I I love it. I think it's great. It's a really cool record. Um, yeah, I had a great interview with Ian Gillen. Ian Pace is is great too. I talked to him about the last album. I mean, I just love that the drummer of the band is such a such an engaging, charming interview, right? But then I got one with Ian Gillen because the plan is we're going to do a cover story for Goldmine and, and you got to, you know, it's got to be a good long article. So I needed kind of both of them. So I held out for Ian and I'm so glad I did because he's so good with the lyric stories and stuff like that. Right. Um, you know, he, you don't want to talk, you don't you don't want to get him talking about Bob Ezrin because he kind of gives you the same story that Ian Pace gives you and it's, right. it's kind of general stuff, but, but he will gladly talk about the motivation behind the lyrics and stuff, which is so cool when he does that. But it's, it's, another one of these super creative albums with a lot of daring music on it you know a few songs that are kind of normal um one thing i don't like is it's kind of got a similar arrangement throughout it just feels like it's all kind of one tone like like they've turned into this band where it's hard to explain like nothing sounds super heavy out of them anymore 
and nothing sounds super light out of them anymore. Like, hmm. like it's just this arrangement where there's this massive rhythm section. The guitars are kind of like, it's really lush and well-recorded, but it doesn't, it just doesn't sound at all raw or heavy. You know what I mean? Right. It's kind of hard to explain, but, but it's really creative. And like Ian said, um, you know, and he was so right about this. He goes, I'm astonished that this late in our career, guys our age, we could be so creative and so into it. It's awesome. And, you know, this is like six records, I think, with Steve Morse uh, from this era. And I love this era. I think Abandon's amazing. That's one that they yeah. don't think is amazing. It's almost my favorite one. Uh, Perpendicular. Everybody loves Perpendicular. So um, I, I just think, uh, you know, out of all the bands that made their best music late in their career it's deep purple number one and i thought like i was saying zz top i think cheap trick motorhead uh are a couple that i i thought yeah sure bunch of their great albums late your eye heap great great albums late in their career now right so um yeah so yeah sorry i could i could talk you right. talk your off about deep purple all <laughs> right <laughs> right on well martin it's always great talking with you and hearing your opinions on things and reading your books like anthem rush in the 70s highly recommended uh great time to read a book guys we're we're going to be probably under quarantine here for oh god who knows how much longer what do you think martin is, is this is the 2020 concerts season over or will we get some in the late summer you think it's pretty wild i mean i think i think you're getting a little bit of this everybody's talking about the plateauing especially in europe and a little bit in the states but i think there's also people are getting real cabin fever and i think you're going to yeah. see people really trying to figure out ways to go back to work today the stock market went up 1200 points um so i don't know it's it's funny i mean to to think i i think everybody's thinking I can't do exactly this for even to the end of April, let alone right. to the end of May. Like people, all sorts of, you know, sensible people are saying at least till the end of May. And, uh, and then a lot of other people like are, you know, ringing the doom bell that, that you, you can't, you can't put the economy in, into this much of an induced coma even another three weeks, let alone six weeks, right? And then people are saying into the summer, and then Dr. Fauci saying this is the new standard, and then everybody's saying it'll come back in a second wave. You know, we're going to get the warm weather, right? Not supposed to get rid of it, but then the weather gets cold again, and what happens? Oh, man, it's it's crazy. Yeah. So Well, I mean, the yeah. thing we've learned through the years is that the pundits and all these people on TV generally can't predict the future because yeah. it's it just they, they, so much of it ends up being wrong. And having said that, I, I, I'm trying to stay optimistic. I, I really, I, I don't expect to be at any shows in, in, in May or maybe yeah. even June, but I, I'm still got my fingers crossed for July. Yeah. I mean, to me, to me, that's the last of our concerns. Like the big gathering of crowds is the last of our concerns. I think having all the factories running again is a heck of a lot yeah. more important. Good like, point. like just yeah. stores open and stuff, right? Like, like, like most of the stores and most of the factories, you know, but, but to, to think about, you know, I, I think cramming a bunch of people into a club to watch a show is probably the last thing a that's going to be allowed. Right. And it, it just seems like antithetical to the social distancing the most. I think I think you really want to see, OK, can we figure out how to run the damn factory? I think that's yeah. the most important thing. Good point. <laughs> Good point. All right, Martin. Well, thank you so much. Please stay safe up there. You're in Toronto, right? Yep. 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 Yeah, it's about the same uh, same level as uh, you know everything locked down. Pretty severe as is pretty much anywhere else in the world, except you know you keep hearing about various places in the states that haven't had it so bad yet. But right, no, it's it's quite a quite a lockdown city, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, stay safe. And again, your book Anthem Rush in the seventies, and that'll be followed by Limelight. Yep. In what Russia September? 80. I think September twenty twenty. They're October saying for that yeah. October ish, and yeah. then Driven. It will be Driven, the third, yeah. the third book. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm really enjoying Anthem and look forward to reading Limelight and Driven. Uh, 
All on Rush by Martin Popoff. Thank you, sir. Thanks, man. Thank you. And congrats on what you've done here. I mean, this is a, this is a heck of an established podcast universe you've created. It's it's pretty amazing, you guys. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. Yeah, we were one of the, one of the first and yeah. uh, 15 years later still still doing our thing. Sometimes I yeah. scratch my head as to why, but uh, you know, I, I love doing it. So, yeah, so yeah. there Very you cool. go. All right, and, man. We'll talk to you later. All right, man. Take care. Okay. Yeah. YYZ here on Talking Metal. Big thanks to Martin for joining us. Guys, stay safe. Continue to wash your hands. Hopefully we're we're over the hump now. I don't know what's going on. I, I just, I want things to go back to normal. Rest in peace, Neil Peart. Talking Metal.